We're on the recorder. Okay. Uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to uh, the beginning of Season 5 of Jewish History at uh, Young Israel of Woodmere. And it's good to be back after a long hiatus. This, this season we're going to discuss the Second Temple. Hopefully it'll take us through June, through whole, the whole year. Uh, we'll begin with the early days of Bayit Sheni, the days of the Persians and Cyrus the Great. And we'll go all the way until the destruction of the temple in the days of Titus, Vespasian and Titus. So we're going to cover material that basically we haven't discussed in years past, uh, when we did the post-temple period and the rabbinic era. This will be fresh ground, uh, and I would imagine it's going to, uh, we're going to cover a lot of material that most people never studied, even if you took Jewish history in college or if you studied in high school. Um, <coughs> this is the forgotten period for the most part. Okay. So... The Second Temple period begins roughly in the year 538 before the Common Era with a declaration made by Cyrus the Great of Persia, King of Persia, permitting Jews who were uh, sent into exile to points east of the land of Israel to go back to their national homeland and to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and build the temple that had once stood on Mount Moriah. Okay. Well, some Jews will do that, and some Jews will say, not for me. As is always the case when there is a return to Zion, some participate and some decline to participate. But before we can even discuss that, we have to understand what were Jews doing in what we would call Chutz La'aretz, in the diaspora. Who are these people? The first commonwealth, the first temple destroyed in roughly 586 by Nebuchadnezzar and the armies of Babylonia, um, <coughs> the destruction of the first temple was accompanied by a dispersion of Jews to other parts of the world, notably to the area between the Tigris and the Euphrates River, in what was the Babylonian kingdom. Although other Jews went to points south, and west. Some Jews went to Egypt, some Jews went to points even further south than Egypt. Others went to Asia Minor, to Turkey. But the most significant of the diaspora communities was the community between the Tigris and the Euphrates in what was then the Babylonian kingdom. Some people went in the year 597. The uh, aristocracy and the religious elite went 11 years before the destruction of the temple, and then in the year 586, uh, many other people of the common folk were uh, sent packing east. Who are these people from the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin? Huh? So those who went early were forcibly sent to Babylonia uh, (coughs) because of bad political behavior by... uh, the vassal king of Judah who wasn't cooperating and so he was, ki- he was replaced by a relative uh, Nebuchadnezzar grabbed the king and sent him to, to, to Bavel together with some of the, the learned elite and the, uh, the priestly elite so there, was a, there were the forerunners in, in Bavel and according to the rabbinic tradition they established the yeshivot and all the infrastructure of Jewish life that, so that uh, when the common folk came there was uh, relig- you know, religious institutions to speak of well you now have a community in, in, in Bavel the Babylonians are defeated by the Persians in the year 559 or 558 um, before the common era and 
now Ezra, uh, not Ezra, uh, Koresh, Cyrus, is in charge of most of the known world. Most of the known world. When he conquers the, eastern, the western provinces, what we call Ever Hanahar, the west of the river, west of the Euphrates. But the, the ancient Near East. So the Persian Empire will extend from uh, roughly Afghanistan to Ethiopia. Can we say Cyrus was Esther's progeny? No. First of all, the, the Medrash says it was Dayavesh, Dayavesh Hamadi. But even that is mythic, mythical in nature. Okay. So in 538, Koresh <coughs> issues a proclamation. A proclamation which we still have to this day. It is preserved in the British Museum. It's known as the Cyrus Cylinder, in which it says that the conquered peoples of Mesopotamia shall be allowed to rebuild their destroyed sanctuaries. The conquered peoples of Mesopotamia shall be allowed to rebuild their, their, their old sanctuaries. Well, why allow such a, such a, a liberal policy? Because the Persians in general, as good polytheists and wise diplomats, understood that if you annoy the subjugated peoples by persecuting them religiously, they won't be cooperative and they'll rebel. That the Babylonians had problems with some of the conquered peoples precisely because they destroyed temples and got in the way of, of religious freedom. So this Persian policy of religious toleration... Uh, is an, a nice step forward for many of the subjugated peoples, the Jews included. What This Cyrus Cylinder was uh, regarded by some as the first ever declaration of religious freedom. In truth, it's not really that. It's just permission to rebuild temples. It's not absolute religious freedom uh, like we would have uh, here in the United States with a First Amendment right. Uh, another thing that they say about the Cyrus Cylinder is that it was the first ever declaration of human rights. But that was Reza Shah Pahlavi's propaganda in the 1970s when he was a, uh, a violator of human rights on a regular basis. The Shah, although he was a friend of the Jews, was not exactly a nice man. But he, uh, when he would take this uh, ancient history of Persia to tout the glories of modern Persia, modern Iran, and say how we're a wonderful people who respect the rights of others and human rights and religious freedom. That was his Mishigas. So, what about the Jews? The Jews are not expressly included in the the Cyrus Cylinder. But the Tanakh, in the book of Ezra and the book of Chronicles, says that Koresh allowed the Jews to go back and build Jerusalem. Well, who does this? Who's going to go? Some Jews. Under whose leadership? That's a major question. Who are the leaders of the Jews at this time? Well, let me ask you a question. Who was the, le who was the leader of the Jewish people in the first Commonwealth period? Who was in charge? Davidic the Davidic line, the king. Who else uh, held the position of, of prominence, if not power? So the, the ecclesiastical hierarchy, the Kohanim, ran the temple. But they really didn't have political power. In the first temple days, who was in control? The king. It was a monarchy, not an absolute, absolute monarchy, but it was a strong monarchy. There were, there were priests who controlled the religious aspect of life, but religion wasn't all that important, to be honest. And there was the prophet. What was the role of the prophet? Keep you on the straight and narrow. Keep who on the straight and narrow? The king, king. Primarily the king. 
The most famous example, of course, is Natan Hanavi and David, when Nathan, the prophet, goes to David and says, you did wrong, you, know, you, you stole another man's wife and then you killed him. So there, there are three kinds of leaders. There's the prophetic leader, there's the political leader, and there's the ecclesiastic. Will we have that again in the second commonwealth? That's the question. So in the book of Ezra, there are several themes. One theme is that the second commonwealth is a fulfillment of the Brit Avraham, the covenant that was made with Abraham, with the forefathers, that this uh, entry into the Holy Land is not an entry of Babylonian or Persian citizens who happen to be of the Mosaic faith into a, 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 a territory that isn't theirs. No. It's a return to a homeland that was vouchsafed by God to ancestors long ago. That's one theme, the, the Brit Avraham. Another theme is it is a fulfillment of the prophecies of return of Isaiah and Jeremiah, that both Yeshayahu and Yirmiyahu prophesied that there would be a return to Zion after the period of the dispersion. Of course, you could ask, uh, you could understand that Jeremiah knew about uh, the, the dispersion because he lived through the destruction of the temple. But Yeshayahu, who lived uh, 150 years earlier, why is he prophesying about the return when he didn't even live to see the destruction? He couldn't even fathom them a destruction. So here's where we have the notion of the Deutero-Isaiah, that the, the critical scholars say that the book of Yeshayahu is actually two different books, or maybe even three different books, Tridio-Isaiah, that the first book is chapters 1 through 39, and the second book is chapter 40 through 66, or 40 through 55, and then 56 through 66 or a third book. And there was a second Isaiah who lived as a contemporary of Yirmiyahu who saw the destruction and prophesied about a return. Okay, so when will the return happen? What did Yirmiyahu say? Yirmiyahu chapter 25. How many years will the dispersion last? 70, 70 years. The Malot 70 years calculated from when? I would think 586. Okay, so, <coughs> one version of the calculation is that it's from the rise of Nebuchadnezzar as a power in the land of Israel, the Babylonian conquest of Ever Hanahar, of the, the, the land west of the Euphrates, because that's when Ju- Judah becomes not a really independent country, but rather a vassal state subjugated to the whim of a hostile king. And so, from a standpoint of uh, national fervor, when are we upset about life, and life stinks, and we, w- we wish it were better? When Nebuchadnezzar takes over, even though the temple is still very much standing and the korbanos is still being brought. Life isn't good. Just like in the second temple days, in the first century, until the year 70, the temple was functioning. But why were there you know, zealots and, and, and nationalists killing people left and right for a hundred years earlier? Because as long as the, the Romans are in control, life isn't good, we want them out. So when you have someone, a foreign ruler, in charge of your life and your destiny, you're already in Galut as far as uh, you're concerned. So if that's the case, then 70 years after... The Babylonian conquest is roughly the year 538, and Cyrus's declaration of allowing Jews to go back to Jerusalem is a fulfillment of the Jeremiah prophecy. That's a very amazing thing. According to Josephus, and we can't verify this is true or not, but according to Josephus, Cyrus was aware of Jeremiah's prophecy and regarded himself as the, as the one who was fulfilling that prophecy. It's very, very, very interesting. The notion that a heathen king would be respectful of a, of a Hebrew prophet's uh, prediction for the future and caring enough to want to fulfill it. Very nice. Okay, well, they're going to be on. The Second Temple period 
is a time of Jewish, uh, the Jews are subjugated to foreign rule, under foreign rule, for almost the entire time, with the rare exception of the Hasmonean kingdom from the year 142 before the Common Era until uh, Pompey's conquest in 63. So for 79 years we're independent. But other than that, we're under somebody else's boot the whole time. Okay. Now, the other way of calculating the 70 years is from the Churban Habayit, the destruction of the Temple in 586, until its rebuilding in the year 516. Of course, then you could ask, well, wait a second. If Cyrus said, go back to Jerusalem and build your Temple in 538, why wasn't it built until 516? That we'll have to figure out. That's going to be a major topic for this evening. Um, But (coughs) the other theme of the Book of Ezra is that there is continuity between the first temple and the second temple. The way things were done the first go-around, they'll be done the same way the second time around. What am I referring to? We'll see. Several major ceremonies of inauguration are going to be mimicking what you know from the earlier biblical period. Okay. Um, Those who stayed behind and did not go to Eretz Yisrael were obligated by uh, Persian rule, by, by the government decree, to give donations to support this endeavor. So like good 20th century American Zionism, one Jew gives money to a second Jew, so a third Jew can move to Israel. Uh, things repeat themselves. Another thing Cyrus does is, according to the book of Ezra, he returns the, the temple vessels which had been stolen by Nebuchadnezzar. Now, there's a little bit of a contradiction because in the very Hayamim and Malachim, the impression that we get is that the, the temple vessels were melted down or stripped of their gold uh, because in the ancient world, the, you didn't have this notion of antiquities, of, of valuables, you know, artifacts. Things had value because there was precious metal to be stolen. Um, that's what the Greeks did in, in, the, the, in the precursor to the Hanukkah story. So nobody's taking a, an artifact because it, it has sentimental value to another person. They take it because it has real value. So uh, there's a stira maybe in the, in the Tanakh between whether the, the, the items were melted down or they were taken by Nebuchadnezzar and kept in, in, in an attic somewhere or in an archives and given back by Cyrus. In any event... Including the menorah? Possibly including the menorah. It says the clay hamikdash including the menorah. So, the, the rabbinic tradition sees in Koresh a very good and proper and wise king. And they make a play on the letters of his name that instead of him being Koresh, he is Kasher, he's kosher, he's a good guy. So, Koresh is kosher. Uh, but, even he is not as far from perfect. And there is a lot, where is there Tanakh here? To the right, to the right, to the right. Let me get a book of Ezra. This is dead time on the tape. Go up and sing, sir. Did you hear the one about the travels? You keep talking. Okay, find me an Ezra. Okay, so there's a passage that says that God, the God of the Hebrews, is located in Jerusalem. What's theologically incorrect about that statement? The God of the Hebrews is located in Jerusalem. 
Hashem is here, Hashem is there, Hashem is truly everywhere, up, up, down, down. So God is everywhere, and Cyrus feels that the God of the Hebrews is in Jerusalem. Why does he think that? How does that fit in the world view or the theological view of, 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 of 2,500 years ago? Each country had their own God. Exactly. Every country had their own God. It was a local God. And if you're a polytheist, they're all real and they're all true. But they have only uh, local powers. And so the God of the Hebrews is only significant and powerful in the Holy Land, in Jerusalem, at his house. The Jews themselves, thank you, the Jews themselves may have believed that, because in Tehillim we have, Ech nashir shir Hashem al admat nechar. How can we sing the song of God on foreign soil? Now you could argue it's just a lament about being in the diaspora, but you could also read it very literally, that how can we do the ceremonies of Judaism, of, of the Mosaic Torah, in a foreign land, when God is only a, a local domestic God and we're going to be somewhere else, we'll have to worship those deities there. Now that, if, if our ancestors 2,600 years ago believed that, then we believe very differently from them. But it's quite possible that many Jews thought that way. It's, a, it's a, a, um, an advancement in religious thinking to believe in an incorporeal God who is the creator of the world, who is everywhere and can be worshipped everywhere. That's what we believe now, but it's, uh, it, it evolves over time. Yeah? Before the, before the destruction of the temple, were there any Jewish communities existing outside of Israel? <coughs> um, <coughs> there was a, a colony of Jews in Elephantine, Egypt, in southern Egypt, on, on the island of Elephantine, they were mercenary soldiers, and that colony was founded in the 620s, before the Common Era. Of course, also, there were the exiled tribes of the north, but the exiled tribes of the north were not exactly uh, observing the Torah as we know it today. Uh, their religion was corrupted by Yeravam ben Nevat, and uh, the theology of, the, of northern Israel is not what we would call contemporary Judaism, and plus they were being assimilated very rapidly into into the the other the lands of the dispersion. So I wouldn't call them Jewish communities. Some of them definitely went south to Judea. So, so yes, some did go south to Judea, although not enough to change the the um, the composition of society. Uh, because we still call it Judah and Benjamin. Yes, there were uh, a remnant, a few people here and there from the other tribes, but it's still Yudal bin Yamin. So could you have? Could you? Could this be a reason where there was um, was great disdain for another? If anybody made another base on Mikdash, for example, an Elephantine, they did have. Yes, and there were really there's a lot of a lot of hassle about. Okay, so in a f- in about two weeks from now, we're going to discuss at length why that temple was destroyed. Well, how, number one, why it was created in the first place. Secondly, why it was destroyed. And after it was destroyed, how the attempts of that community to secure support for the rebuilding of their temple from the Jews of Jerusalem fell flat because the Jews of Jerusalem did not want a competing shrine. Just as we'll find you know, competition with the House of Chonyo uh, 300 years after that in the Hasmonean period. D- D- Jerusalem doesn't want to have any competition. Just like in the days of, uh, of uh, Rechavam, he didn't want to have competition at Beit El and Dan uh, in Mamlachet Yisrael. Okay, so <coughs> that's Cyrus. He's kosher, but he believes that the, the Hebrew God is a domestic local God. Now, the returnees, who are they? At the head of the list is a man by the name of Zerubbabel. 
Zerubbabel is sort of a forgotten figure in Jewish history. The only reason why you'd know him is because he's in Maotzur in one of the later stanzas. Ketzebabel, Zerubbabel. Other than that, you never heard of him. Well, the name of the book... Josephus talks about He does. Uh, and says very important comments about his, his, his uh, lineage. You don't sing Josephus. No, no. What's missing what is the man who he named the book after. Where is Ezra? Where is Ezra? Why is he not at the, the vanguard of the return to Zion? He's too young. Okay, so it's a trick question. It's a trick question. Next week, we're going to spend the whole session discussing the flawed chronology of the rabbis. Uh, if, 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 in a, if in an Aguda Shul, the title of this course was the Second Temple Period, 538 BCE to 70 CE, as it is here in the Young Israel, they wouldn't let me give the course. Why? Because that violates the chronology of the Seder Olam, which is the classic rabbinic work of chronology written in the second century by Rabbi Yossi ben Chalafta, the fourth generation Tana, who we've learned a lot about in past uh, seasons. Uh, And it's a chronology of the Tanakh and of the post-Tanakh era up until his own time, uh, based upon which uh, we say that this is the year 5,776. I mean, our our calendar, uh, the Jewish calendar, is based upon his calculations of, of biblical chronology. The problem is that he got it completely wrong when it came to the Persian period, and he truncated it to 34 years, when in fact it's about 200 years. And next, next week we're going to spend the whole session on that topic. But, the, but just I want to bring up one point. The rabbis ask, why was Ezra not at the forefront of the return to Zion, if after all he is the, you know, the, the most important player in the early Second Temple period? Why is it this guy's Rubavel and not Ezra? So they give an answer in the Medrash that he was busy learning Torah at the feet of Baruch ben Neria, who was described the disciple of Yirmiyahu. Now, Baruch ben Neria is an important person in, in the book of Jeremiah, and he plays an important role in the immediate post-destruction period. But there's no way that Ezra ever met the man, because Ezra comes to Jerusalem in the year 458 before the Common Era, by the, the, by the consensus of the general scholarly community, uh, so he's 130, 130 years later. The two never cross paths. So why does the Midrash say that, that he was studying from Baruch ben Because the Midrash is following Rabbi Yossi's chronology, which is just flat wrong. Now, th- there's, a, there's a lesson in that Midrash, which we can uh, take to heart, even if hist- uh, the historicity is completely uh, absurd. And that is, studying Torah is more important than Shivat Zion under certain circumstances. So it's a very Satmar kind of message that studying Torah is more important than the return to Zion, not absolutely more important, but that Ezra needed to study Torah for a lengthy period of time before he could, uh, in good conscience and good faith, go to Israel and be the religious leader of the community. So he needed time in yeshiva before he goes to Eretz Yisrael. That's a nice and valuable moral message, but as a historical matter, it doesn't hold water. Okay, so... um, Zerubbabel is of the Davidic, Davidic line. And his uncle, Sheish Batsar, or some say Sheish Batsar and Zerubbabel are the same person. However, I tend to think that they're related but not the same person. Sheish Batsar is appointed the governor of the province. So here we have the Persians in control, letting Jews go to Israel, and letting a Jew 
be the governor of the province. Now, I give the same class on, uh, on Monday nights in New Rochelle. So last night was the first night in my own shul, and I gave extra double bonus extra credit points for whoever can give me the 20th century uh, com- comparable example of a Jew who was appointed the governor by a Gentile authority over the community of Eretz Yisrael. Herbert Samuel. Samuel. Very good. Okay, so in New Rochelle they didn't get it right, but here we got a few people who knew it. So, uh, okay. So Herbert Samuel was appointed in 1920 as the High Commissioner of Palestine by the British government, uh, who held the mandate uh, at that point for, for, for Palestine. Why was he appointed? Well, number one, he was a competent bureaucrat. But number two, they specifically wanted a Jew to hold that office, at least in the early days of the mandate, because subsequent office holders were, were Gentile. Um, Samuel was only there from 20 to 25, and after the, the, the Hebrew University was established, he was out of office, and it was a Gentile uh, leadership. He was the one that brought the Mufti to power. That was his biggest mistake. That was the mistake. But Herbert Samuel, like Sheish Batsar and like Zerubbabel, appointed by Gentile kings uh, to lead the community of Eretz Yisrael, uh, the nascent Jewish community. Okay. Um, who else is in, in control of the community? Well, the Kohen, Yehoshua ben Yehot Sadak. So here Yehoshua, or Yeshua, is the high priest, and he is the grandson of the last high priest of the first temple period. So here we see continuity in the leadership roles. The political leadership, you have someone who is of the Davidic dynasty. In the ecclesiastical leadership, you have someone who is a grandson of the, of the former high priest. So it's not brand new people coming out of left field to, to run the show. These are people with a pedigree. All right? And there is a great concern for genealogical purity. You have to be able to prove that you belong here that you are a descendant of Judah and Benjamin, and you're not from the foreign wives or from some foreign nation trying to sneak in, like the Erev Rav uh, in the days of the, of, the, of, the, of the Chumash. So there's a desire to keep out the riffraff. Now, in the first temple period, the riffraff was a real problem. First you have the Erev Rav, then you have the Givonim, who morph into the Nitinim. Uh, you have peoples who are not of the 12 tribes, yet who live and play a role in Judahite society. So the goal was to not have that this time around. That was uh, uh, to the detriment of the first, uh, the first commonwealth. Don't do it again. So everybody has to have their Megillat Yuchasin, a scroll of, uh, of ancestry, a family tree, and if you don't have it, you're out. Or at least you're kept on the margins. Um, <coughs> how many people return in the year 538? So according to the, to the Bible, it's 42,360. The scholars tend to think that this is an inflated number because based upon archaeological record, they say that there were only like 2,000 people living in Yerushalayim. Now, it's possible that, that Yerushalayim had only 2,000 people and the others were living on farmland in the adjacent territories. But whatever it is, for even 42,000 is not a lot compared to what might have been several million in the, uh, the late first Commonwealth period. So... Everyone arrives at Jerusalem in the seventh month. What holidays in the seventh month? What else? Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot. So, for those of you who haven't read the book of, of Ezra yet, tell me which holiday was the significant observance in, Ezra, in, in, in the 
in the days of Sheish Batzar and Zerubavel, at this time in the seventh month, which holiday was it? Sukkot. Sukkot. Why not Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur? You don't do all the okay, so for a few reasons. Number one, those are not pilgrimage festivals. But also number two, and I, I spoke about this two years ago in the, when we did the holiday series, the, the concept of the Yamim no Ra'im is a very late concept. It doesn't appear in the Torah, it doesn't appear in the Tanakh, it doesn't even appear in uh, the apocryphal literature or the early literature of the Tanaim. It's a, it's a late notion. Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are not all that important in early Judaism. What's Yamim no Ra'im? Yamim no Ra'im, days of awe. Yamim no Ra'im. So Yamim no Ra'im, it's a term that doesn't exist until Gaonic times. Uh, is there a connection in the days of the Bible uh, between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur? Not really. They're two separate, uh, separate holidays serving different purposes uh, that are kind of amorphous, at least in the case of Rosh Hashanah. What is Zikaron? What is Teruah? Yom Kippur is a day that for securing atonement because of the, the ritual of the, of, the, of the temple service by the high priest, but the average person doesn't really do anything. And, and some say that in ancient times the shofar in Rosh Hashanah was only blown in the temple, not beyond the temple uh, confines. So Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are not all that important. What is important? Sukkot. It's a pilgrimage festival. You have to go and bring your, your various sacrifices. Lo yeru panai rekam. You can't go empty-handed before God. So everyone is going to come to the site of the temple. What's the problem? There is no temple. What are you going to do? It's an empty plot of land. So build one. It takes time. Build an altar. You can have a mizbeach without a bias. You can have an altar without a house. Now, I said one of the themes of the book of Ezra is that we're going to mimic what happened in the first commonwealth period. Well, were there korbanot? Was there a mizbeach without a Beit HaMikdash? Absolutely, for a few hundred years. The Mishkan in, in the wilderness, at Gilgal, at Shiloh, Nov, Givon, Wherever it might have been, you have a, 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 a sacrificial service without a glorious house of God. So the same thing is going to happen now. You have the korbanot without the bite. Uh, <coughs> yeah. Huh? In the days of Ezra, we'll have a solemn ceremony on Rosh Hashanah where he gives the greatest high holiday sermon in the history of Judaism and makes the people cry and be upset. And he says, don't be so upset. You have to go home and eat, and eat lunch. Uh, so that will be in a few weeks' time. We'll discuss that. But didn't you also talk about in that holiday series that the Karban Pesach continued even after? Okay. So, this very evening, in a few minutes, we'll talk about how the Karban Pesach plays a role when they finally inaugurate the building. When they're inaugurating the altar, it's on Sukkot. When they inaugurate the building, it'll be, uh, Pesach will be relevant. Now, when the Bait Rishon was inaugurated, it was done at what time of year? Sukkot. Sukkot. Well, actually, it was done even on Yom Kippur, and they ate on Yom Kippur, and they didn't fast, and they had to uh, atone for the sin of eating on Yom Kippur, but, uh, but, but God forgave everyone, so, so, so the Midrashic tradition tells us. But it was on Sukkot. So again, continuity. The first temple was inaugurated Sukkot, so now we're going to have again, the altar is inaugurated Sukkot. All right. Excuse me, you didn't, you didn't mention, and I'm just wondering... Uh-huh. What kind of people came back? Were they the poor, the disenfranchised? I would think they would be they so, rather than people okay. who had it too good. The, those who were wealthy, for the most part, didn't leave Baville. Those who were poor did leave. Okay. Also, those who had something to gain left, and those who didn't have much to gain didn't leave Baville. 
So in a few weeks when we get to the, 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 uh, the, the second uh, wave of, of emigres in the days of Ezra, 458, we're going to see that there were no Levim. <coughs> there were plenty of Kohanim, but no Levim. Why? Because the Kohanim are going to have the emoluments of the temple, and the Levim <laughs> play second fiddle at best. And so if I'm a Levi with a good Parnassa in Babylonia, why should I go travel a thousand miles to be a gatekeeper or a singer in the choir? They don't get paid too well. So it's about how well you're doing in Bovel, but also what do I have to gain by going to Eretz Yisrael? All right. Um, There was a fear of the surrounding nations. And that's why korbanot were offered. Not just because Moshe, as it's written in the, in the Torah of Moses, which we'll see later in the, in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, that they want to follow the Mosaic Protocol, that's important to them, but even to those who were not so frum, who were not uh, uh, punctilious in the observance of every de- detail of Mosaic law, they wanted to offer sacrifices to appease God because you want Hashem to protect you. Hashem well, that's only going to happen if you give him something, if you give him korbanot. So we have to appease the deity to have physical protection from the surrounding peoples. All right. Well, who opposes this project? People who live there. Exactly. The Judahites and the Benjaminites, who are returning from far away, have been given permission by the Persians to conduct this uh, building project. But those who are already in the, in the land don't necessarily like it. Well... What do they do? They have a plan. The plan is to try to infiltrate (coughs) and bust it up from the inside, be a fifth column. But that effort fails because the Jews who are returning are careful to exclude everyone who really isn't welcome. And they're made to feel unwelcome. So I'll read you the Pasuk, Perak Dalad. Okay. Vayigshu el Zubavel, vel Rashei Havot, vayomru, vayomru lahem, nivnei machem, let us build with you. Ki kachem nidrosh lelokechem, because like you we seek out, we worship your God, your deity. Velo anachnu zovchim, and to him we offer sacrifices. Mimei esar chadon melech Ashur, from the days of the Assyrian king, hamaleo tanupohu brought us here. So who are these people? These are strangers to the Holy Land who were brought to the northern part of the country by an Assyrian monarch a hundred years earlier as part of a massive relocating of population, a population transfer of many, many peoples all around the known world. And they came to the Holy Land and they're now worshipping the God of the Hebrews, the uh, the God of the Holy Land, and offering sacrifices to Him. And since religiously they're saying we're very similar to you guys, why don't we also participate in this construction project for a a house uh, of worship for this deity? Now the response is, V'yom alahem zerubavel v'yeshua, v'shar roshay avot Yisrael, lo lachem v'lanu livnot bayit lelokeinu. It is not for us and for you together jointly to build this house for God, ki anachnu yachad nivnel Hashem lokei Yisrael, kashir tzivanu ha-melech koresh melech paras. But rather we, and only we, are going to build at the command of Cyrus, the king of Persia. So, the outsiders who are claiming religious uh, affinity to the Jews, are excluded in a very nasty and harsh way. So basically, get out, we don't want your help. 
So these are the Shomronim. It doesn't say it in those terms because the, 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 that, that word is a later usage, but these are what we would call the Shomronim. So, okay, so the Shomronim and the Kutim are synonymous, but let's now explain why they have those names. So, opposition to the Temple Project were, was manifest by outsiders, these Shomronim Kutim, who we'll explain in a second, but also by other nations who infiltrated the land during the era of a political vacuum and a, and a, and a demographic vacuum. When the Jews are uh, expelled in 597 and 586, so there is territory that was formerly inhabited that is now vacant. What would happen if an atomic bomb were to be dropped on Hewlett? What would the people in Woodmere do five seconds later? They'd grab land, okay? They'd take it. And what would happen if some of the people from Hewlett actually uh, you know, escaped before the bomb went off to, to Lynbrook and then came back 50 years later and wanted their property again and they said, we want our houses. So what would the people from Woodmere who stole the land say? They'd say, too bad, get out. We don't want you here. Just like uh, in, in, in the Holocaust. So, no, but in Poland, Jews came back from the concentration camps in the fall of 45, spring of 46, and said, uh, this was my house. And what did the Polacks say? No, it isn't. Get out. So, so these sorts of things happen in every era, in every civilization. The, the Jews are coming back. Those who grabbed the land in the intervening period don't want to give it up. Okay, now that's true about Ammonites, Moabites, um, Edomites who ring to the, to the south and to the east the, the, the province of Judah. But actually, even Ju- Judahites themselves, Jews, who were not expelled from the land, who stayed there throughout the era of the exile, and who took their neighbor's property, were reluctant to give in to the returnees and say, all right, fine, you want some property, you want to be the, uh, the bosses of, of the community, go right ahead. No, people don't do that. They preserve their prerogatives and what they have uh, you know, grabbed for themselves over many years' time. So here you have Jew versus Jew. The, the text of the Ezra Nehemiah doesn't talk about that, but the, the, the scholarship generally agrees that not all the Jews were kicked out. Some of the population was, but plenty stayed behind. And those who stayed behind are not fans of the returnees. There's a clash. Okay, now who are these, these the Samaritans, these Shomanim, the Kutim? There's a big machlokus among the historians and between the rabbinic Judaism and Samaritan religion over the origins of the Samaritan people. The Jewish version of what happened is that when the Assyrian kings destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 before the Common Era and exiled the ten tribes to points beyond the river. Okay, uh, The land was rough, was pretty empty and new population was brought in. From where? From Kuta. Where is Kuta? So, the Greek islands, basically. The Mediterranean islands. Asia Minor and, and, and the Greek islands. Or random other locations, because this was not an exact science. People were going left and right, coming and going from all over the world, ending up in random places. So long as it wasn't their native land, that's what the Assyrians had in mind. That no one should be in their native land, this way nationalism will be a thing of the past, and people will not have uh, the fire in the belly to fight against uh, their overlord. But, some of the uh, ten tribes remained behind. And so these Kutim who moved to Shomron, to the, the Samaria, northern Israel, 
are now getting a little bit of the flavor of, of Israelite religion, and courtesy of uh, being scared to death by uh, lions who attacked and ate some people, they said, oh, it must be we have to worship the local god. We have to worship the local god, we'll learn the ways of, uh, 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 of, um, of the Israelites, and we'll have a religion just like theirs. And so the sh- early Shomroni religion is... Uh, you know, sort of genealogically and biologically non-Israelite, but Israelite in nature in terms of belief and worship. Um, now, that's what the Jews believe. The Jews. And that uh, we further say that unlike the good Jews who worship God at the house of God in Jerusalem, which is the, the site chosen by the Ribbonu Shalolam in the days of King David and Shlomo and they built the temple and that's the true Makom HaShariv Har Hashem that the Shomronim say that Mount Grizim is the place that God chose. On what basis did they make the claim that, that Mount Grizim is the special place? Well, truth be told, in the Torah, in the Chamishachum She Torah, there's no mention of Jerusalem and there's plenty of mention of Har Grizim and many of the important events of early Israelite religion happen at Shechem. So you can make a strong argument that they're right and the, and, the, and, the, the, and the Jews are wrong and that Jerusalem is not the right place to worship God that Hagrizim is the right place. All right, so they, they have uh, some points in their favor. So weren't the initial Kutim actually believed <coughs> and later on they were discredited? Okay, so when they were, they were uh, written out of the fold of Judaism and declared to be non-Jews in the halachic sense is a, is a big debate when that exactly happens. It, it's sometime after the Tanaitic period and the early Amoraic period, which is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later than what we're talking about now. They were Jewish in the halachic sense for most of the Second Temple period, even if they were political adversaries and rivals of the good Jews of Jerusalem. Okay. Uh, yes, because there were <coughs> there was some intermarriage at the border, meaning just north of Jerusalem in the Beit El region, where southern Samaria, northern Judah. So there was a, tr- a crossover of population; it, it was fluid. But for the most part, intermarriage was frowned upon by the Samaritans. Uh, it doesn't. It's not that it didn't happen. Of course, it happened, but it was frowned upon. Now, so. Well, yes, there, there, there are more than minor as the years go on. Okay, now that's... Even today, aren't the Samaritans uh, dead set against marrying outside of their... Uh, they only marry their own people, and as a result, they have glaucoma and all sorts of hereditary diseases because there only are about three, there are only about 3,000 of them in the world that are left. There's a population that's in the West Bank in, in, in the region of Shechem, and there's a population in Chulon in Israel. Uh, and so... They're, they're close with each other, but they're sometimes separated by a hostile border. Um, now, that's the, the Jewish version of what happened. What's the Samaritan version of what happened? Most Jews don't even know the Samaritan version because we, like, we read our version and that's it. Okay. Okay, so they say that all went wrong in the days of Eli, that the, the tabernacle was at Shechem. And that Uzzah was a good Uzi was a good was a good Kohen. Uh, uh, well, Uzzah is Peretz Uzzah, but it's a different person. But Uzi was the Kohen, and he was a good man. And his underling was Eli, but Eli, for venal reasons, trying to just uh, steal all the emoluments for himself, transferred the, the tabernacle or made a rival tabernacle at Shiloh, a little bit south of Shechem, and. 
that was uh, theologically in error, and that Eli's disciple Shmuel was a no-goodnik, and Shmuel illegitimately crowned uh, Saul the king, he's no good, and then he crowned David the king, and David is no good, and the whole Davidic line is no good, and they established the, 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 the uh, capital city, and eventually a house of worship at Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is not the place that God chose, but rather Shechem is the place that God chose. And that furthermore, in the early Second Commonwealth period, Ezra comes from Babylonia with a falsification of the Mosaic Torah and gives the people an Ezra Torah, that is what we would call the Masoretic Text, or our version of the Torah, and that it's wrong in many respects, and that the real Torah of Moses was the Samaritan Torah. So that's their version of the story. Which they still have today, correct. Now, now their version of the story is, is ahistorical in nature, and was composed, their version didn't exist until there was a need to compete with the Jewish narrative many, many centuries later. We, our first record of it is in the 14th century of the Common Era, but it probably was around from the early period of the Common Era, uh, in Tanaitic times, when relations between the rabbinic Jews and the, and the Shomronim went bad, and there was the desire to write them out of uh, the community and declare them to be non-Jews. Okay, what's the true historical version of what happened? We have, the, we have the Jewish version, we have the Samaritan version, what's the real version? Okay, so the real version is sort of halfway in between. The religion of the North was already being corrupted in the days of Yeravam ben Nevat. That the temple of Yerushalayim, built by Shlomo HaMelech, was the house of worship for the United Monarchy. But once the monarchy is split into north and south, you, ca- you have northern kings who don't want their population going further south, and so they establish a, a hostile border, and you can't cross it. Uh, in, in, the, in the holiday lectures, we spoke about Tuba'av. What's one of the reasons for Tuba'av? That the Prozda'ot, the sentries at the border, were taken away by Hoshea ben Eila. That after 200 years of northerners not being able to go south to Jerusalem on Aliyah Regel, they were allowed to go, uh, to go down. So, but for a long time, you couldn't go. Where was the worship? At Beit El and Don. So, Beit El is in the southern part of the northern kingdom. Don is the northern part of the northern kingdom. And what's there? Eglei Zahav, golden calves. Now, some would argue that the golden calves of the northern kingdom is sort of a, a revisionist history trying to make them look bad by making it a, a, a mimicking of the Chet Egel of the Bible. There's a lot of scholarship on that. We can't go into it now. There's a lot of critical scholarship. So, <coughs> the point is, people in the north are not going to Jerusalem, they, and they're not inclined to think of it as the place that God chose. When you have to, out of necessity, worship in a certain shul, what do you say to yourself? All right, God will hear my prayers anyway. In other words, if your shul is not so, so pious and holy... Uh, if, if it's the only shul in walking distance that uh, doesn't have a machitza, whatever it is, you know, in the old days people would go to conservative shul because it's the only game in town. I had God will hear my prayers anyway. A lot of, lot of, lot of <laughs> a, a good pious Jews daven the non orthodox synagogues. I, I'll have to make do with it. Well, that's what people do in the north. I can't go to Jerusalem. I'll, make, I'll, I'll, I'll have to live with the Beit El and Don, the other pl- places of worship. But after a while, what do people come to think? that this is p- totally kosher. This is what God wants. This is the proper serving of the deity. So, in the north, when the country is destroyed in 722, and you have the remnant who are surviving, 
they have for, for several centuries already not regarded Jerusalem as God's house. They thought that Shem was God's house or somewhere in the, in, the, in the northern part of the country. And so when they instruct the newcomers who are the Kuthians about the worship of the God of Israel, what are they telling them? They're telling them the northern religion, which is you worship God in this fashion here in the, in the Sumerian highlands and not in some, on some mountain 100 miles to the south in Judah. So with that said, the religion of the Shomronim, we don't know much about it uh, for the next 100 years or so between uh, their arrival and uh, the return to Zion of, the, of the, the Jews from Babylonia. But when the Jews from Babylonia get back, so here the Shomronim, or the Kutim, what do you want to call them, offered to help. Let's build a house for God. Was it a sincere offer, or was it a bluff? I ask you. It's hard to know. We read the text of the Tanakh, and with the commentators, they make it sound like it was a bluff, because they're referred to as the Tsare Yehuda Abidamin. They're already regarded as enemies. A priori, they're enemies. And so, they're offering to help. It must be it's a scam. It's like, you know, Arafat with the olive branch. It's a scam. They don't really mean to have peace with us. But maybe, just maybe, they did mean to have peace and wanted to build the temple and have some influence. We don't know, because there was no temple at Shechem, at Hagrizim. That was built later. Do you know when that was built? After Alexander the Great conquers the Holy Land, then they build their house at Grizim, and it survives for 200 years until it's destroyed by whom? By the Chashmonaim, in particular by, Yo- by John Hyrcanus, by uh, Yochanan Kohen Gadol. Okay, so maybe they did want to have a house of God at Jerusalem. We don't know. Let's assume for the moment that they were hostile, they didn't mean well. Fine. So did the Shomronim migrate from the north to around Jerusalem in order to be in competition <coughs> with the... Yes. So the, the, uh, the peoples of the northern uh, provinces gravitated to points further south simply because they could. The region of Binyamin, which is just to the north of Yehuda, so basically the area that's, you know, Ramallah today, or just north of that, uh, Beidel, there's, a, there, there's a, you know, a space that needs population, because the people of the earlier kingdom had been kicked out. So when you have empty land that's fertile, that, so they you could, that could be cultivated, they fill a vacuum. And they fill the vacuum to as, as far south as they can go. Just like the people of Edom fill the vacuum as far north as they can go. And the people of Moab fill a vacuum to as far west as they can go. Everyone is grabbing whatever they can closer and closer encroaching upon Jerusalem. Okay. Um, <coughs> in the few minutes we have left, there is a chap- chapter 4 of Ezra is um, a weird chapter because it talks about opposition to the temple uh, project in the days of Artaxerxes, Artaxasta, which is a hundred years after uh, the first return to Zion. And so there's problems figuring out the chronology here, but the, the story is on the whole very much reliable. And what does it say? That the enemies, the opponents of the building project, they appealed to the, um, the government in Persia and said, you know something, these Jews have a history that you need to know about. They were once a great and glorious people with a kingdom, with a, with a king on a throne in Jerusalem, with a, with a population that paid taxes to this king, and they want to restore that former glory, okay, at your expense. And they're a rebellious people, 
that when they were a vassal state to the Babylonians in the days of Nebuchadnezzar, what did they do? They rebelled. And so if you allow this construction in Jerusalem and this temple project to continue unabated, what's going to happen to you, the Persians? You are going to lose the entire Avar region, that the province west of the Euphrates will, will rebel, you'll lose it. So what do you need to do? You need to nip this in the bud right now. Stop the project. So the, the word is sent to the, to the Persian authorities, and they stop the project. They stop it. Now what do the Jews have to say about that? This is no good. We came back to Zion not to have an aborted effort, not to have a, a miscarriage here. We came back to Zion to, to, uh, to build the commonwealth in its entirety um, without hostile opposition from these uh, heathens. So two things happen. In chapter 5, we have prophetic influence. Chagai and Zechariah who are two out of the three last prophets, Malachi is not mentioned here, but Chagai and Zechariah, tell the people, build even without permission. I don't care if you don't have a permit in the window from the, the Buildings Commission, do it anyway. And if anyone tries to stop us, we'll, we will take extraordinary measures to keep this going. So the building continues in the days of Darius, around the year 520. And, of course, the local governor, who at this time is not a Jew, uh, says, who gave you authority to do this? And they say, we don't need your stinking permits. This is our land, and if not for uh, our enemies, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, who disrupted our settled national existence uh, you know, 70, 80 years ago, we would still be here, and you wouldn't be here. But in any event, we have permission from Cyrus the Great, so go and ask a question of the authorities back in Persia to check the archives, and you will see that there was permission granted by the Persian authorities 20 years ago for us to do this, and we're going to do it. And so they checked the archives, and lo and behold, yes, there was permission given by Cyrus, and what does Darius do? He says the Jews can continue to build, and I will donate all the required foodstuffs that are needed for the sacrificial service. So here, D- Darius is actually a bigger tzaddik than Koresh was. Koresh said, oh, you want to go to build? Go and build. But Daryavish, what does he do? He gives a donation. Here, here's the stuff. Here are the animals. Here's the salt. Here's the grain, the wine, the oil. Everything. It's yours. So that's what happens. And the temple is built. When is it inaugurated? It's inaugurated in 516. Or 515. So if 16 or 15. When in the year? Pesach time. Why Pesach? Because... Just like the Mishkan of Gilgal was started at Pesach time with uh, the or, the Chavot Surim, the, uh, the, the the knives to, to to cut the foreskin to give everybody a bris milah and an Afer Paraduma, the ashes of the red heifer, and be pure for the Korban Pesach. So too in this time, the beginning of the Second Temple, we're going to have a major gathering of the Korban Pesach with the purification ceremonies, and people offer their sacrifice. Okay. Uh, one last little point, Chagai, we know nothing about him other than what appears in his two chapters. Zechariah we know a little bit more about, uh, but Chagai we know nothing. Why was he called Chagai? Why that name? So some say from the, from the Shoresh of Chagiga, of pilgrimage, of pilgrimage festival, that the only thing he was concerned about in his four little prophecies uh, are do the temple project, finish the job, don't get distracted, and don't get... Um, uh, stopped and uh, obstructed by our enemies simply accomplish the task that God has set out for us 
And so, since his focus is on Chagiga, Aliyah Regel, he's called Chagai. Uh, the one thing we have of, of a halachic nature in, in, in his book is a question about whether or not something renders a Kohen impure. If a, if a, if a dead body touches something and touches something to something, levels of impurity, and he asked the Kohen, is there a Tumor Tara? And they got the answer wrong, which goes to show you they didn't know all that much. It wasn't, alert, it wasn't a learned audience that was returning to Zion in the beginning. Okay. Um, so we'll stop here. Next time, we're going to spend a whole session on the chronology of the rabbis and how various scholars over the years have tried to reconcile the secular scholarship with that of the Seder Olam and that why, the theological reasons why they do that, although why I think it's totally unnecessary and a sort of a fruitless endeavor. And then the week after that, we'll then discuss Ezra himself. What happens... You had Zerubbabel, the early period. You had the return, the, the, the uh, delayed rebuilding of the temple by 23 years. But finally it's constructed, it's, it's functioning. And is society living a religious life? The answer is no. And that's why Ezra has to come in and save the day with the, with the Mosaic Torah that he brings with him from Babel. So see you next week.